0: Hey writers, join our First Draft Weekly Writers Club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time. For more information go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab.
1: One is such a lonely number when your mind is on another.
0: I'm Allison Langer.
2: I'm Andrea Askowitz, and this is Writing Class Radio.
0: You'll hear true
2: personal stories and learn how to write your own stories. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, Writing Class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shits. There's no place, (laughs) why do you always sing it? (laughs) I don't know, I just like to. There's no place in
0: the world like writing class and we wanna bring you in. Today on our show, we have a story by Kelly Eden who lives in New Zealand. Woo! I know, so cool. Kelly brought this essay to Second Draft, a class we offer on Zoom. And Kelly took the feedback she received from the class and posted on Medium, a magazine that anybody can post to and anybody can read her story shows her struggle with Crohn's disease while asking herself, am I doing enough?
2: So I, d- I just want to say that this story just brought up so much for me personally that I actually even had a hard time talking about what it was like as an art piece.
0: Yeah, I know, I know. Maybe we have too much free time. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, I think if I had to get up every single day and go to, go to work at 8 a.m. and be there and I had a boss who was on my back and I couldn't, the creative side gets squelched. I think often, yeah, it's hard. A lot of the people in our classes have full-time jobs and they come to class at eight at night and they're being asked to be creative. So then I think it's really difficult.
2: Well, this story brought up so much for me personally, and it made me realize, I mean, it's making me think about how lucky I am that I can ask these questions too. Am I doing enough? But before we ruin the story, we'll be back with Kelly's essay after the break. Hey, writers. For the last 45 years, I've been going to tennis clinics to practice forehand, backhand serves. What does this have to do with writing? Well, practice, I've learned in the last 45 years, is what it takes to get good at anything. And that's why Writing Class Radio hosts a tips clinic a writing tips clinic. We do this every second Saturday so that we can all practice going to scene, writing like we speak, omitting needless words, everything that it takes to become great or at least better at writing. So join us every second Saturday from 12 noon to one Easter time on Zoom. To join, go to writingclassradio.com and click the link for the tips clinic. It's $10, and believe me, it's a lot cheaper than a tennis clinic. See you there.
0: Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Cundall, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Up next is Kelly Eden. Kelly's essays and short fiction have won several awards. She has been writing for magazines and online for over 13 years and now coaches other writers to do the same. When she's not writing, Kelly loves to watch musicals with her kids Four of them. Yeah, four of them. And she loves to spend time with her sexy musician husband. She said that. I've never seen him.
2: I'm, I'm sure he's very sexy if she has four kids.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you can find Kelly on Twitter at Eden underscore writer. Here's Kelly Eden reading her story. I'm not scared of death, but I can't stop asking this one question.
1: I'm not scared of death, but I can't stop asking this one question. I assumed the throbbing pain and loud clicking in my shoulder was a simple injury from a fall, but the physio suspects some underlying condition and insists I head straight to the emergency department. First, though, I head home. I let my husband know, grab a notebook, reassure the kids, make sure the cats are fed, and drive myself to the hospital. As I search for a car park, The final scenes of a movie I watched last night with my oldest girls run through my head. As music lovers, we decided to watch Tick Tick Boom. It tells the story of writer Jonathan Larson and his struggles to produce a well-received musical. Larson was 35 years old when he died, eight years younger than I am today. Since watching the movie, I can't seem to let go of a question it brought up for me. It's a question I've asked myself many times since being diagnosed. With an immune disorder 15 years ago. If I die today, have I done enough with my life? Like many artists and writers, Jonathan Larson died before witnessing the impact his life had on the world. It was after midnight on the night of January 24th 1996 when Larson returned home from the final rehearsal of his musical. He'd been experiencing severe chest pains all week, but doctors reassured him it was a virus or food poisoning of some kind, and he'd pushed through to finish what he'd started years earlier. The following day, his show would debut at the New York Theatre Workshop. It was finally happening, everything he worked so hard for. He stood in his kitchen, making a cup of tea before bed. Moments later, he collapsed on the floor. Larson died of an aortic aneurysm that night, and never saw the opening of his now famous show, Rent. People with chronic illnesses like myself, or surrounded by friends with chronic illnesses, as Larson was, no death has its own schedule. It used to scare me more than it does now. What scares me most isn't the actual dying, but dying before I've done anything significant. Larson, surrounded by friends who died young in the AIDS epidemic, felt an urgency to leave his mark on the world before it was too late. And he did exactly that. Larson's legacy of music transformed how musicals are written and viewed. In society's opinion, Larson's life was significant enough for Netflix to air his story and for millions of us to watch it. But did it feel like enough to him? I like to think he knew he was making an impact. It's made me wonder, what would feel like enough to me? Like Larson, I feel the ticking urgency of life. At 43, I've now lived with Crohn's disease for most of my adult years. Crohn's is an incurable, partly inherited disease which affects the intestines and can be life-threatening if it's not kept under control. A few years ago, my cousin was rushed to intensive care when bleeding caused by her Crohn's disease couldn't be stopped. She'd been happily travelling on vacation only days earlier. They managed to save her life, but she lost a large section of her bowel. When I was first diagnosed I lost 24 pounds in 14 days, spent weeks in the hospital where they were unable to control the pain, even on morphine, and then six months drinking my meals in liquid form. I lost years of my 20s to be rest in illness. Since then I've managed to keep my Crohn's in remission with immune suppressing drugs, a shelf full of vitamins and a careful diet, but being immunocompromised comes with a myriad of complications and surprise illnesses. A good chunk of my life is spent in hospital waiting rooms, like the one I'm in today. I walk through the automatic doors and greet the receptionist, whose faces I see more often than my sister's. Take a seat near the front to be triaged, the older woman tells me, handing me a form. Her eyes crinkle in a way that shows she's smiling under her mask. I smile back, but I'm not sure if she can see it or if my own eyes are too full of anxiety. Am I about to face another condition that steals away parts of my life? I push down my fears and pretend going to the emergency room isn't a big deal. After all, I do it so often. Surveying the green vinyl chairs arranged like a maze, I take the most socially distant seat I can find, two seats across from a young woman and her tiny baby. In the waiting room, I drop my gaze to the speckled lino floor. I'm not in the mood for small talk. Before I left, my husband had held me and tried his best to make the situation light. If they come at you with lupus or cancer, say, yep, okay, but what I'm really worried about is this broken nail I got yesterday. Laughing helps. But I had plans today to spend time with my girls. I had articles to write and research to do. I'd rather not spend another afternoon sitting in a hospital room, worrying about my health. I come prepared for a long, silent wait armed with a book or something to write with, and because we have four kids, I usually come alone. I'm not sure why it's always a shock when my body fails. Maybe it's not a shock, but I'm always disappointed. It feels like a personal failure, rather than a physical one. In my teens and early twenties, I was an athlete. For more than 10 hours a week, I trained on ice as a figure skater. The rest of the week I studied hard at school or university and spent my free time running, playing touch rugby, swimming, and bike riding. I was driven, an overachiever. On the outside, I still look healthy and fit. I look in the mirror and fool myself into thinking I'm the person I used to be. But not being able to commit to a sport, or even regular exercise of any kind, feels like a failure. Not being able to push as hard as I want to at work feels like a failure. I used to imagine I'd write historical novels, I got halfway through one in my early 30s. But lengthy novel writing became too much, so I switched to 1,000-word articles that I sell to women's magazines. It's satisfying, but I know it doesn't make anywhere near the impact a longer work would. I've been a writer for over 13 years, and far from the level I'd like to be. If I was well, would I be holding my own full-length book in my hands? Maybe a deeply researched and gorgeously told one, like a Barbara Kingsolver historical novel, or even a young adult novel like Lois Laurie's The Giver. I'm not sure I'd ever be that good, even if I was healthy. It's frustrating to think I'll never find out. I still feel the same internal drive I had in my 20s, the drive to succeed, compete, and achieve at a high level in everything I do. I try to push myself, but like a silent terrorist, My immune system sabotages my efforts. My hospital records are in Encyclopedia Britannica. I try my best to live between attacks or around attacks, and lately I've been just trying to carry on through the attacks because they're getting closer together as I get older. Some days I cope, and some days it overwhelms me. I'm tired. I'm beyond tired. I'm tired of managing new disorders, juggling new medications, listening to specialists make their best guesses, tip their heads in pity, or worse, treat me like a circus attraction. This is really unusual. We don't see this a lot in people your age. It's getting harder to stay hopeful and on top of things all the time. When I'm in hospital, I run through a mental checklist to stay positive. Your work matters is one of the items on my list. I think about the impact of my kids seeing me do work I love, work that I hope makes a small difference in people's lives. But is it enough? Or is seeing me sick all the time making the bigger impact? Sitting in the hospital waiting room, I have no idea what today's diagnosis will be, and I can't help feeling scared. After four hours, a nurse calls my name. She holds the door open for me and smiles, a tight-lipped half-smile. She looks tired too. So, it's this arm, she asks. I nod. Does this hurt? She guides my arm toward the ceiling, lifting it until I wince. Placing my arm back on my knee, the nurse practitioner turns and speaks to her notes. Your physio suspects an immune problem, affecting your muscles. She types something into her computer, frowns. I think it's just your shoulder. I'd like to consult with the doctor on duty. I'll be right back. I sit and stare at the green speckled floor while she talks to a doctor. In the hallway, I can hear her listing off immune disorders, medical history, and symptoms. I squeeze my hands into fists, hoping she's right and the physio is wrong. I'd spent the morning scrolling the internet and reading awful Google diagnoses. I knew it wasn't a good idea, but the physio had been vague about which underlying disorder she suspected. I couldn't seem to stop myself reading on and on about MS, bone cancer and a rare immune disorder that eats away at your muscles and causes the kinds of symptoms I have, even though I know how unlikely any of those are. Then again, I collect unlikely diseases. I hold my breath and lift my chin so I don't cry. This stage, when you don't know what's wrong, is always overwhelming. The doctor mumbles MRI blood test. He lists a series of tests I don't recognise and I breathe out, relieved. It sounds like they're being thorough. I don't want to be disabled or in pain, although often I am. I don't want to die young, although there's a likelihood for all of us that we will. I'm coming to realise how few of us are blessed with a vibrant old age. No one wants to think about that, but it's hard to ignore the reality. It's not like we get what we deserve when it comes to time on this earth. Jonathan Larson, as talented as he was, died at 35. A few years ago, a lovely young friend of ours died in his sleep at just 17. Meanwhile, my grandfather, a man who's lived a very selfish life, is still alive in his late 80s. Who knows which timeline I'll end up with. But when my time is up, will I feel like I've done enough? It's a question I ask myself often, but I'm starting to wonder if it's even the right question. I don't value my friends and family because of what they've done. I don't love them less or more based on their achievements. As a society, we only celebrate the lives of people who did enough for us to notice. The more they did, the more we value them. But do I care what society thinks of me? Do I care about my life measuring up to some level of enough deemed worthy of a Netflix movie? No, I don't think so. Perhaps then it is the wrong question to be asking. In the opening song of his musical Rent, Larson asks, how do you measure a life? And decides to measure it in love. I like that idea. Love is crucial. But I still think there's more to it. I left the hospital today with an MRI appointment and no answers. It'll be months before I know what's next for me. Left in limbo, I find other questions sneaking in. I cried in the shower, the water erasing my tears, and asked, how much more can I stand up under? But I can't stay with that kind of question for too long. It gets dangerous. A better question might be, are we all trying to do too much? Maybe leaving a mark isn't as important as we think. I have no idea what the right question is. Hopefully, I'll live long enough to find out.
2: You know what's happening to me like I feel like this story is so talking to me that I'm having a hard time like even paying attention to the writing which is maybe because it was just well written and it's not nothing jumped out at me or maybe it's because I'm just sort of obsessed lately with like this idea like why am I trying so hard and running around and running around to achieve stuff which is exactly the question that this narrator is asking. And I've been asking that too. Why? Why do I want to be famous? Like, why do I want to make a mark? She didn't use that word, fame. Isn't she asking the same question? She has another layer to it, which is like she's facing death and she's also facing the inability to do work the way she used to be able to do it because of her disease.
0: Well, I think we're all facing death. And especially when you're told that Jonathan Larson died at 35, but she has Crohn's and, and it's a serious thing. And she lives with it every day. So she really has to take a look at where her priorities are because she's spending a lot of the day, as we see in this story, it's a container for her day. And she tells us a whole story in this container. She was there for four hours.
2: Yeah. In the waiting room for four hours. She writes this story. Yeah. And it's true. This is a good container. And by container, we mean like these four hours to use these four hours to tell a whole entire story about her philosophy on life and production.
0: But she really starts asking herself the, the tough question. And in my opinion, the question is, does she care what society thinks of her? And she answers it. She says, no, I don't think so. You crossed it out here. You know what I I did? I crossed those lines out because I don't think she answers them. I want you to bring them back because, and I'll tell you why, because I love the way she says no in her accent. I don't think so. Like, I just love that. So that's why I want it back. (laughs) Her accent's adorable (laughs) throughout.
2: But I, I so interesting because when I was listening right now and I was editing also, Right. And so she says, but do I care what society thinks of me? Do I care about my life measuring up to some level of enough deemed worthy of a Netflix movie? But I didn't think she so far earned the right to say no because she's still questioning. So she writes, no, I don't think so. But I don't think she should answer it because I don't think she has the answer yet. And she tells us she doesn't seconds later.
0: I'm curious to know if she it cares, because I kind of care. I think she does too, or else she wouldn't be writing this whole story. But at the end of the story, she is coming to the fact that I don't think that's the right question. So I love the discovery, because I feel like, okay, I need to sit down and ask myself the right questions. And the same questions as she did, meaning, do I value my friends and family more because of what they've done? Right. She, she doesn't. She says, no, she doesn't. Right. Do you? I,
2: well... All right, the only reason you're friends with me, because I'm so super famous and excellent at what I do. I doubt it. Well, it's, this is sort of off
0: piste, but you know, my dad from when I, from as little as I can possibly remember would go to introduce me to his golf buddies. And he'd be like, Oh, this is frosty. And, and this is Joe. And this is Dr. George. And it's always the people he thought had more power or influence or prestige that he gave a title to. He
2: landed on Doctor Dr. Fro- Dr. Doctor Dr.
0: Doctor George and it, and Frosty was just some and he's a lawyer who's done life. great. You know, like all these guys are very successful, but there's something about my dad and the way he thinks that I feel is kind of passed down that I try to ignore. But I think these things mm. are ingrained in us that we assume people who are famous or wealthy or doing these great things in life are more important. And she's right. She asks herself that. I mean they they seem to value society does those people more. And so of course, we also want to be valued. We want to be remembered.
2: Yeah, right. We do.
0: So we have to like get it out of our system. We have to really start to talk ourselves out of this. Or we ha- or we just have to be realistic. <laughs> like here I am like almost
2: turning 54 and I'm not famous the way I wished I was going to be
0: 10, 20 years ago. And what would you sacrifice for that? Because I look at my friends who are super famous, the moms, and I, and I say this as women because Women are expected to take care of the kids and to manage all the emotional labor of the house and the family. And if we want to be successful and do great things in life and be remembered and be famous, we have to sacrifice some of that other stuff. And are you willing to sacrifice that? This narrator is telling us, you know what? I don't think I am. Well, let me get to the end of it before I answer your question because am I
2: willing to sacrifice it? Like, no, probably not. You know? I kind of think I like my life and I don't want to never see my, well, I was going to say, I don't want to never see my children. That sounds nice, but um, <laughs> but I mean, do I really want to work like a crazy dog? As I know I would have to, to get as good as I want
0: to. So our narrator has four children. And she homeschools them. What? BTW. Yes. Really? Because she's in second draft and, and it's, you know, in New Zealand, it's, it's daytime over there when we're meeting at eight to nine Eastern time, right? And her kids will come in and they are precious and adorable. And I'm like, what are they doing home at noon on a school day? You know? And she's like, oh no, I homeschool them. I'm like, are you insane?
2: Yeah. Wow. I'd like her to write a story about that. I mean, she didn't even mention what you're mentioning. She didn't even mention being a woman with four children at home that she homeschools. She did not even bring that in.
0: Well, I mean, that's not what this story's about. So we would have made her take it out anyway.
2: How does she plan on making a huge mark when she's homeschooling four children? Maybe that's her huge mark. Maybe that's what she's going to come to in the next story. Um, but she says, do I care about life? Measuring up. And then she talks about.
0: rent. You mean the, the musical? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the way Larson is woven through this. Yeah, I like that. To make her point. That is not easy. Right, because then she
2: says, maybe it's the wrong question. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh yeah. And she's also, she brings in Rent, the musical, which which Larson even asked, how do you measure a life?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and Larson came to, he measures it in love, which she says she likes that idea. Very much. I mean, my mom called me today and I didn't answer. And then my mom um, texted me today, call me. And then I'm like, um, oh my God, hi, mom. And she's like, hey, baby. I'm like, mom, <laughs> what's going on? You know, like I thought she was on the floor to like barely able to squeak out a text, like, you know, cause it seemed so urgent. And then she's like, nope, uh, I just want to talk to my baby. And I was so annoyed, <laughs> you know, so I was so annoyed. Because
0: she was getting in the way of your masterpiece.
2: Yep. Your fame. She got in the way of my like, full-on focus because I had it going for a second, three seconds. I don't know. I was focused. But man, how lucky am I that I have a mom still alive, 80-something, you know, I'm 54. My mom is like, just, just want to say hi to my baby, <laughs> you
0: know? Yeah, that's sweet. I'm the luckiest. So while we were at our tutor yesterday, when you blew him off, I was listening to how I built this and they did a whole thing on Tate's Cookies. And the woman who started Tate's, I mean, it's a great story. If you haven't ever listened to that podcast, I mean, they don't need our plug, but my God, it's so good. But I really like this episode because at the end, so this woman ends up being extremely successful. She goes through a lot of ups and downs and she works her entire life, like literally starting at 12. She has dedicated her life to baking and cookies and then started this business and the whole thing. And at one point she- Are Tate's good? Yeah. Yeah. I've had tates. I'm not a huge fan of like crunchy cookies. I like home-baked cookies, but there's a reason why she ended up doing the tates and why they all became successful. And I mean, it's a great story and I don't want to ruin it. But at the end, the host asks, would you do it all over again? And she said, um, yeah, I would, but I thought you were going to say no, no. I mean, it's all she knew. She grew up on a farm completely poor. And so this, this really did, you know, being successful and having money and being able to, pay off loans in her parents' house. And, you know, like there's a lot of good that came out of it, but she said she wasted her entire childhood. Like she had no childhood. And so it's not just a childhood people waste. Like I think about this all the time. I get up in the morning, I sit down at my desk and I work all the way until I have to go pick up my kids. And then it's the same thing every week. And as you know, writers out there, Like you could write and write and write, write for weeks. You get a great essay, you submit it, and you get rejected from all every single place. Not because the writing's bad, because no one seems to care about your story. And now you've wasted three weeks working on something And what do you have to show for it? I told you I've been working on a a story all week. Yeah. We had this conversation. This is the
2: way I want to rehash this conversation. So I said, hey, Allison, I've been working on the story. I'm totally into it. Like I wake up in the morning and I like, I come up with these ideas and it's, I've been doing this for like the last four days. And you said, I call that a waste of time.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I do especially if you're trying to be famous. Now, if you're writing and you feel good every day and you feel productive and you feel like you're doing great things in your life and this is what you want to do with your every single day. But if you're staring outside and being like, I haven't been outside, I haven't played pickleball, I haven't gone for a bike ride, I haven't played tennis and I'm sitting here devoted to this and I'm failing, then how successful are you? I think that
2: you can even ask that question like, you know, people who work and work and work and bring in enough money to support their family They have to do that work, but they're not, you know, going outside and relaxing and enjoying their lives. Like, are they failures? Like,
0: I don't know. I don't know. It's a question. I mean, it's really like, how do you make a living and live life to the fullest? It may start with love. It may start with taking the pressure off and just enjoying the moments and also having balance. And that's what this lady on how I built this said is she said, I just wish I had more balance. It wasn't that I wouldn't work. It's that I would bring more balance into my life. And I think in this piece by Kelly Eden, that was just read, is that what she's saying is, I think in asking myself, how do I fulfill this life? What is the question she says? Are we all just trying to do too much? And I mean, I think that's the question for us. What is too much for each person? And I don't think I can answer that for you and no one can answer it for me. Because remember, you were like, why do you edit these guys' essays for free from prison? Like, why are you doing that all day long? And it's because I love it. I love it. I feel a sense of purpose. And it has nothing to do with money, obviously, but it just makes me feel like I am connecting with somebody. And to me, the connection makes me feel good. But if I tried to do 20 different people and 20 different essays, when I start getting crazy with all the edits and then I, I feel strained, then I do feel like I'm trying to do too much and I lose the joy.
2: I think that, we, that it's worth saying this, and I'm just going to try to say this, that, that this question is a very privileged question. And I'm not sure that our narrator is talking about work that she needs to do to support her family. Right. And when you ask me, why am I sitting here wasting... My time, and, and you did ask me the the other day, mm-hmm. and my answer the same as you, the same as I asked you. Why are you wasting your time editing these guys' stories from prison? Some of them are going to get published, but still, you're, God, you're putting in a significant amount of time. And is that your life's joy? Is that your purpose? Mm-hmm. Both of us are asking that question, not because we, you know, we have to acknowledge. I think I want to. I just I'm going to acknowledge that we're not doing it for the money that we are fucking lucky that we have money coming in from other places, like the classes that we teach. Right. I'm, for me, I have other money coming in that enables me to be an artist during the day. And like, am I wasting my time? Sometimes I feel like I am. And sometimes I feel like when I am that focused on a story, when I'm in it, when it co- comes to me, when I wake up in the morning and I have ideas, I feel as good as ever. Like I feel as, if I'm connected to myself, to the world, to like something bigger, I feel, I do, I feel like it is my purpose when I'm in that zone. Sometimes I feel like I'm wasting fucking so much time and I should be, I don't know what I should be doing. I should be giving my mom more time on the phone. Yeah. Or I should be logging into my kid's portal so that I can help him with his homework, which I never do. Yeah. Maybe I should do that. Like maybe I should tune in more to my children, but
0: I mean, this is really not about us, but what it did, this story did for us, is it started to make us ask the hard questions like, Mm -hmm. why are you doing what you do? Why? What is your purpose in life? Are, Are you trying to do too much? Are you missing the present because of future goals? So I do think that it's really important for all of us to ask whatever question makes sense to us but to really stop and think, because life is short. And that's what I think she was trying to say. Like, life, you just never know when time's up. So why don't we just do what we want to do today? And that does include going to a job and making money. But most people are not there for 24 hours. There's still a way where you can stop and look at your loved one in the eyes, really listen and understand, take five minutes to write in a journal or walk around the block, but to really live life. Because tomorrow is not promised. I mean, everybody has the
2: capacity to bring more balance into their lives. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe there are some people that simply are in a situation where they just have to work and work and work. But that's not the situation of our narrator. And that's not our situation, which is why I really related to it.
0: Why do you think this story worked so well? Just so that people listening and and writing and reading can learn about either structure or containers or a change in the narrator, like whatever it is, what made this different from a situation and more of a story?
2: So she did contain it in those four hours while she was at the hospital. And that's a very satisfying device to use as a writer. She also wove in Larson, like you mentioned. So she brought Larson in at the top, someone who died at 35. He created this master work but did he know he created it is that the situation he didn't know he died before it became a hit
0: I can't remember what she said I feel like yeah Larson
2: died before witnessing the impact that his life had on the world so Larson died before he even knew what a genius he was and that's a bummer
0: do you think he became a genius because he died young and did this rent or do you think it was rent that like went crazy and then he died
2: I'm guessing that rent was just amazing and it it had an impact. Yeah. I think, I, I do like your question though. Sometimes people die and then their work gets elevated. I don't know in this case. So she frames it really well in these four hours with that container. She uses Larson and brings Larson back. And then Larson artistically also asked the same question. So it worked for her totally. And then she is asking questions Does she change? Uh, She changes in that she's thinking that she's probably asking the wrong questions. And that's a change. So instead of wondering if she's, if she should push and push, she's asking, why am I pushing? Pushing so much. So hard. Yeah. So that's why I think this story worked.
0: And I just want to say she brought this to um, second draft. And Mm -hmm. it was really solid when she brought it, but there were, I can't remember what it was about the story. There was maybe some excess or there wasn't enough. I I think Larson wasn't wound in as much. Maybe he was, I can't remember, but what was really helpful was to get the opinion of the other people in class, like just how it landed on them. And then she just turned it around the next day. And I I think she was going to try to get it published somewhere. And then finally, she just like, I'm just going to put it up on medium. You know, I just want to put it out there. But didn't it get a lot of traction on Medium? Yes. it did. Yes. It's just such a slog sometimes to try to get it published. And and it just, she felt like this is important now and I'm just going to put it out there. And I think it's amazing that she did. And then when I read it, the full draft, the brand new second draft or third draft or whatever it was, I was like, oh my God, we have to put this on the podcast because it's just so good. Well, that's kind of meta. She's like, am I going
2: to, am I going to like fight to become successful. And by successful, I mean, get a story published in a, you know, prestigious magazine, or am I just going to put it out there on medium, which is a free blog that anyone in the world can post on and anyone in the world can read. And she did, she did that. But then a lot of people ended up reading it. It did get a lot of traction. So she basically had something to say. She was thinking about something. And instead of trying so hard, which is what she's questioning, why try so hard, She decided not to try so hard and just put it out there. That's super cool.
0: I love it. I really love it. Well done, Kelly Eden. And if any of you out there want to jump into Second Draft, all that information's on our website. So maybe we should explain First Draft and Second Draft really fast. Okay,
2: do it. So, first draft happens every Tuesday from noon to one and every Wednesday from six to seven Eastern. And what it is is writing to a prompt, and anyone can come and you write to a prompt and you get very gentle, positive feedback. And now, since we've, we have that, we decided to give those people who want to take what they write and kind of push it more and rework it. We've created a second draft class and we have two of those. So, if you want to join first, and or second draft, join on patreon.com slash Radio.
0: Super great community. I love it. And it's super cheap. First draft is only $25 a month, and second draft is $125, but that includes first draft. So um, you guys jump in. Kelly initially submitted a piece to us, and I remember like kind of sending it back and saying, gosh, it's close, but it needs a little work. I think you'd benefit from some of our writing classes and they're not that expensive or, you know, first one's always free. And she said, okay, I'm going to do it because it's very hard to write alone. It's very hard to get feedback to see a different side than how you see it yourself. So like I have Andrea, so I'll send my stuff to her and I think it's perfect. And then it comes back completely torn to shreds. I get completely demoralized and then I never want to look at it again. Um <laughs> that's the process yeah and it's the way it works it's how writing is and then you take it or leave it so sometimes i leave it and i do what i want and then i try to get published and i don't get published and then she says see you should have said done what i told you and um and she's usually right but um having an editor is really important that's the moral of the story and also having a community to write with that's really it too yeah yeah
2: Thank you, Kelly Eden, for sharing your story, and thank you for listening. Writing Class Radio is produced by Allison Langer, me, Andrea Askowitz, and by Matt Kundal, Evan Szyminski, and Courtney Fox at the Sound Off Media Company. Theme music is by Courtney Fox. There's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com including essays to study, editing resources, video classes, writing retreats, and live online classes. Join our writing community by following us on Patreon. For $10 a month, I'll answer all your publishing questions. And like we said above, $25 gets you into First Draft. Check out patreon.com slash writingclassradio. A new episode will drop every other Wednesday, so look for us. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours?
0: Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. It's said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. Well, guess
2: what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the
1: Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids.
0: This podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends. Just
2: remember, anyone can be a cash kid. You just have to learn how to become one.